Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Something about business finance just gets really confusing. I don't know if it's the numbers or the pressure or all of the taxes and everything that goes into it, but usually most business owners, at least at some point, have struggled with their business finances, myself included. It's a really complicated topic. So because it's such a complicated topic, and I know I do have a lot of business owners that listen in, I was really excited about today's guest, Mark Butler. Mark Butler is the founder of an accounting startup called Let's Do the Books, as well as a bookkeeper, CFO and helps top online entrepreneurs like Brooke Castillo. Before working in finance, Mark co-founded three online businesses that brought in close to $2 million in total revenue. Today, Mark combines his business savvy with his certification in life coaching to help business owners take control of their finances and work through the shame and anxiety that almost always comes when dealing with money. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, but here's what you're going to learn. We're going to talk a little bit about imposter syndrome. Yes, Mark even experienced imposter syndrome in his own business and with his current business, So it was really fun to talk through how that showed up for him and more importantly, how he worked through that. We talk about cash flow management lessons that Mark learned from his businesses. Cash flow management, guys, is just a fancy way of saying budgeting. So it's a really important step when it comes to businesses. But if you want to think of it from like a budgeting lens, that'll help you too. We talk about first steps for cash flow management in your business. What do you do exactly first? The importance of separating business money from personal money. All of my entrepreneur friends, please listen up. If you have been combining your business and your personal accounts, it's time to really take Mark's advice and maybe separate those. He'll teach you exactly how to do that as well. We talk about what service Mark specifically offers to his clients, differences and similarities in cash flow management for different business sizes. Does a $100,000 business manage their cash the same as a $2 million business? We talk about how that might be a little bit different. Common anxieties that Mark services are equipped to fix. Why relying on ratios can actually be kind of tricky for your business. Strategies for organizing money for taxes. We all need that. I know I definitely do. Mark's own personal finance management strategies for his life. The emotional aspect of making investment decisions. We talk about the Dave Ramsey influence, looking at debt dogmatically and how that can actually be problematic and why your perceived financial problem in business could very well be a marketing problem. Guys, this was such a great episode. We covered so much that I know will help a lot of my fellow business owners. And I am so excited to turn the mic over to my friend, Mark Butler from Let's Do the Books. So let's go ahead and dive in. Mark Butler, thank you so, so much for hanging out. It's an honor to chat with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am so stoked to chat about this. I have so many people that have requested more information about how to become a better CFO in their businesses or manage their business finances. And so I was really excited to see that you are an expert in this. So talk to us a little bit about what you do and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, my clients are mostly... And when I say mostly, probably 90%, they're, they're coaches of some flavor, life coaches, business coaches, health coaches, and they describe me as their CFO. So, And I kind of have two parts of my business. In one part of my business, I actually am the CFO in the business where I work with, at the moment, I think eight clients whose businesses are, you know, one to $5 million businesses. And 
day-to-day, I manage the cash and I consult with the client directly. And often that's that part of the business. I have another business called Let's Do the Books. Let's Do the Books is a bookkeeping service that takes care of the, of the, the reports and the reconciliations for up and coming coaching businesses. And so those are the two things we do. I kind of fell into this about seven years ago where I had owned a couple of businesses. I had sold some online businesses, but, and, and they were good outcomes, but they weren't amazing outcomes. So I kind of had to go get a job. I ended up landing a job with a company called you need a budget. It's one of my best friends company. They have personal budgeting software. Are you aware of, of you need a budget? We love Jesse. He was just on not that long ago. Really? Yeah. He's a great Jesse guy. Jesse Meekum is one of my very best friends. That's so cool. Uh, so when I, I sold my, when I sold my businesses, I, he and I were sharing an office mm. and I was like, Hey man, uh, you got a job for me. And so he hired me to be his staff writer because I'd done all the copywriting in my old businesses. And I loved that. I was his staff writer for a year, but I, you know, that kind of was capped in its income potential. Yeah. So I said, look, you've got this great thing going with YNAB. Can I take YNAB and implement it as a sort of done for you service slash consulting thing for small business owners in your community? And he said, sure, let's try it. So I launched inside of YNAB as a, as sort of a, a, like a mini offering for them. Six months later, I had about 30 clients and it was going fine, but it wasn't a big enough revenue stream for it to be very exciting for YNAB. You know, they're a Mm. great, big, successful business. So he said, let's wind down the consulting and we'll just have you sort of evangelize YNAB to business owners. And I agreed with him that that was the right move for him, but I was really liking it. So instead he let me buy my clients from him and go be independent again. Sweet. So that's when sort of Mark Butler as the budgeting guy for coaches was born. It just happened that a lot of my first clients were coaches because as you know, coaches tend to be connectors. And before I knew it, I had all these coaches as clients Uh, and it's just grown from there. So I don't have a finance background. I don't have an accounting background, but I have a background of business ownership. And then when I combined that with what Jesse teaches about cash management and what they do with their software, I implement that now in business and people call me their CFO, their bookkeeper. That's how I, that's amazing. I love that you did this too. Cause so many people think you have to have a traditional, like you have to be a CPA or you have to do all of these things in order to step into this role. Um, I'm curious for you, did you ever run into any imposter syndrome with that? Or was that not really an issue for you? Oh, really bad, really bad. So really, yeah. I mean, from two directions, number one, because I don't have the correct initials after my name, I don't have CPA or MBA or any, I don't even have a college degree, honestly. Love that. So I had, I had imposter syndrome there. And then um, also I had the imposter syndrome that came with not really seeing myself as a, as quote unquote, good at money. Mm. Because I viewed myself as the entrepreneurial type and like, I can probably figure some things out with marketing and product development, but I'm not the money guy. That's not how I viewed myself. So when I started this business and people started to refer to me as the money guy, I was just like, no, I, I, I know you, you think that, but I don't think that. Hmm. And for years it went that way where I was like, I kind of struggled with that imposter syndrome and that where that really showed up was in my pricing as I'm sure won't surprise you. Uh, it took me a long time to where I even had clients who were pressuring me to raise my rates. Oh, that's bad when your clients are. It's bad. It's bad. I, one time I raised my rates. This is very early in my business. I raised my, my one-to-one rate from like, I think I raised it from 300 a month for, you know, to be like the CFO to yeah. 500 or 600 a month. 
And when I did that, one of my clients said, it's still not enough of an increase, but I'm at least relieved because uh, some of your clients are my friends. And we've been talking about how worried we are that your rates are so low that you're just going to go out of business because you can't sustain oh, this. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> it was so true. I was so burned out. I was working an insane number of hours. I had tons and tons of clients, so I couldn't really give any of them the attention that they probably wanted from their CFO. So the imposter syndrome impact the prices. And once the imposter syndrome kind of started to resolve itself, yeah, the prices went up a lot. And now I've got happy clients and I'm happy and healthy. So yeah, that's what matters too. I think so many newbie coaches, especially are so afraid of charging what they're worth because they're like, Oh God, what if, what if somebody says no, it's like, no, that's the point. (laughs) You want people to say no, that aren't right for you. If everyone says yes, you have a pricing problem. Yes. Oh, that's such good advice. Talk to us about your previous businesses. What were you doing? I had uh, a membership site. This is sort of like 2009 to 2012. A partner and I had a membership site where we taught SEO. Oh, cool. This is kind of like old school SEO that today we pretty much just call spam, but it worked at the time. (laughs) Totally. It worked worked really well at the time. And so we had a membership site where we taught people that. We charged about 30 bucks a month and we had at its peak 1,800 members. It was like a $50,000 per month membership site. Super fun. Then Google changed their algorithms and it was kind of game over. Uh, overnight, I spun off from that two products. We spun off a WordPress backup and security service Smart. that we ended up selling to automatic, which is the company that is behind WordPress. So oh, cool! like the inventor of WordPress is named Matt Mullenweg. He started a company called automatic. We ended up selling that business to him. Uh, my partner on that project was my brother and he went to work for automatic and still works there. And then the third thing was a, it was a guest posting. Remember how guest posting was the thing? Like, yeah, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever. Yep. We created a hub where people could install our WordPress plugin that we developed. Mm. And then they could give and receive guest posts. So if I said, yes, I'll receive guest posts on my site, posts would appear in my WordPress dashboard. I could review them, rate them, and then either accept or decline them. And if I accepted them, they went live on my site. And if I didn't accept them, they went back into the system to be submitted to another site. Oh, that's Uh, a killer idea. It was really fun. It was called Post Runner. And we really envisioned it as being a place where really high quality content was exchanged. We just removed the friction from guest posting. Unfortunately, it just turned out to be a total spam fest. People were sending garbage content. Happens. And... um, but we had over a million blog posts go through that system. It's incredible. Uh, it was it was pretty wild. One of our customers was really excited about it. He reached out and asked if we would buy, if he could buy the the thing from us. And at that point, we'd realized it was pretty spammy. We didn't really view it like this is going to be around forever. So when sure. he offered to buy it, we sold it to him. Yeah. And then you, I presume you learned a ton of managing money lessons from all of the businesses. And like, what did you learn from your personal experience when it comes to managing cash flow? I always hear you run out of cash, your business is dead. Did you find that to be the case or like, what's your experience there? You know, for me in those businesses, the businesses were, you know, they're high margin businesses. There was a lot of profit. We didn't have a big team. It was just me and my business partner pretty much and a programmer. And so the businesses expenses weren't super high. What I, where those businesses really struggled was in the fact that I wasn't great with my personal finances. Mm. So I was kind of having to treat my business like an ATM and, you know, periodically just having to send my business partner a text and saying, Hey, I need to take five grand. So you take five, I'll take five. Cause we took everything evenly. Right. 
Well, that put us in a position where it's not like the business really ran so, so lean, but instead of thinking about it like a CEO and a CFO could, we were just treating it like an ATM. So when the business started to struggle, like when Google changed that algorithm and our business was not really working anymore, instead of having a, a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank and being able to say, well, we're smart, let's pivot and do something else. And we have this cash to sort of support that change we kind of just had to wind it down and I went and got a job and he went on to a new entrepreneurial venture. Mm-hmm. If we'd had a bunch of cash in the bank and if we were thinking, I think like CEOs could have, it could have been a different outcome. So the biggest thing for me was not treating my business, I think with the respect it deserved as its own entity with its own needs and its own opportunities. And instead treating it like an ATM. I love that you mentioned this because I see so many times, even early in my own business, I'm a financial coach. So I was so embarrassed that I was doing that with my own business. I'm like, what the heck? I know better. <laughs> like, I know yeah. how to do this. But I think it's not it's not very intuitive for a lot of people. So can you like break down like a quick framework of how is maybe the best practice for managing cash flow when you're just getting started in your business? So at a conceptual level, I, I encourage people to think about themselves as it's all they are they're the one person, but they really occupy three or four different roles. Mm. They occupy the role of CEO whose job is to grow the business. They occupy the role of investor in the early days because they're probably funding the business with some of their personal cash. They operate as the employee in the business that is receiving direction from the CEO and actually going and doing the work. And all of those people have their own goals and their own needs. The employee has bills to pay. The investor wants to see a good return on investment. The CEO wants to see growth. It's tough when you, when one person has to manage all those competing priorities, Mm -hmm. but the way I like to do it and the way I encourage people to do it is to actually say to themselves, who am I today right now in the decision I'm making? Who am I? Am I the CEO trying to grow or am I the employee trying to take a vacation? And just to uh, respect both of those roles, priorities, Mm -hmm. so that the water stays a little bit more clear. Yeah, It's actually a negotiation you end up having in your own head. But if you know that it's a negotiation between two roles, then it becomes easier. So that's kind of the highest level conceptual thing. In a very nuts and bolts way, the thing I encourage people to do from early, 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 even before they think they need to, is to, is to separate their business finances from their personal finances. But why? <laughs> because the bigger reason is a psychological reason. Mm. And that reason is when you, whether you have a, an official entity set up or not, because you can just go to your bank and say, I just need another checking account. It doesn't have to be you know, a Mark Butler LLC checking account. It can just be another checking account. When I call that checking account, the business's checking account, I am now acknowledging that that business is real and that it's its own thing. Until then, I can very much treat my business like a hobby and I can put my programs I'm purchasing, training I'm buying, coaching I'm buying, uh, web hosting, all these things that I'm buying. I can put it all on my personal credit card and I can keep treating this like a hobby. Mm. Now, there's nothing wrong with a hobby. If you want a hobby, call it a hobby. No problem. But if you want a business, the f- one of the first best ways to treat it like a business is to give it its own checking account, its own credit card. Then maybe you set up as an LLC. If a tax person tells you that's a good idea, it usually is. But you separate these things so that you're recognizing this thing is different. The, the question people usually ask me is, 
Well, so then what does that look like? Am I taking money from my personal checking account, putting it in this business checking account, and then spending it on the business from there? And my answer is yes, that's exactly what you do. Got it. Even if, let's say you're going to buy, pick a number. I don't care what the number is. Whether it's a $500 coaching program or a $15,000 coaching program, move the money from personal checking to business checking. Because then you're saying, as an investor, I'm putting this many dollars into this business with an Mm -hmm. expectation that it will do something. Right. Then that money becomes the responsibility of the CEO of that business. And then we, that person goes to work with that money. Other people will say, well, yeah, but maybe it's my credit card. Maybe I'm, I'm using my personal card. Even then I want you to have an acknowledgement. I want you to have a new credit card that's for the business and acknowledge that that expense belongs to this project. Mm. It's that clear separation in our brains. I could see that being super powerful. Totally clear separation. The, the, the benefits of that are psychological. Like I said, they're also practical because when tax time rolls around, you will thank yourself that you don't have to go combing through hundreds and hundreds of personal transactions to find the 12 business transactions you had in the last year for your new project. Mm -hmm. I did that two years, man. It was a pain. I did too. I did, you know, I I'd meet with an accountant and he'd be like, what do you got for me? And I, I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What do you right. mean? What do I have for you? And he was the first person to kind of educate me on what bookkeeping even is. Mm-hmm. Um, so now being in the position I'm in long before people feel like they need to hire me, I say, that's totally fine. Set up a business checking account and a business credit card and run your stuff out of there. You will thank yourself a thousand times over. That's so true. What do you recommend when somebody maybe has been running their business for a couple of years and they haven't, it's just been, you know, PayPal and transferring in and out for personal use or their personal checking account. It's just very all over the place. Is there, do you have to like slowly wing into the separate things or is it like a quick, you know, rip off the bandaid kind of thing? I mean, I tell people to to tear off the bandaid when, for example, when people onboard to my bookkeeping service, if they've been mixing business and personal, we're never, we're not bugged because like you said, you did it. I did it. We've all done it. So it's, there's no, there's no like big financial sin that they've committed here. I just say, look, now that you're here, let's do you a favor. And let's say in the next 30 days, we're going to have a PayPal account for the business, checking account, a credit card. And then your job is to run through the few subscriptions you have, switch them over to your business accounts and let's just be done with it. When we onboard them to bookkeeping, we offer to clean up their past mess and say, we'll comb through those transactions with you, put them all into reports for you. But now let's not, let's not, uh, let's not keep going with this same messiness. Well, let's, let's tear off that bandaid. When I'm curious for, for you, when you work with people, how does it functionally work? Like logistically, like what, what do people expect? And like, what's the role that you give? Is it reporting? Like, like walk me through that. So in the bookkeeping service, what people what people get from us is that we go into their business bank accounts. Uh, most of the bigger banks now, in fact, all of the bigger banks and many of the smaller banks have like a bookkeeper's access. Yeah. So my team and I can log into the bank account, but we can't transact. Got it. So there's, we have access to the data, but we can't, there's no security risk. Um, also our favorite software, you need a budget connect successfully to the majority of, you know, majority of banks out there. So we go into, you need a budget. We import the transactions. We categorize them to the best of our ability. Um, if we need to go to the bank to do a reconciliation, we log into the bank and do a reconciliation so that we know that everything is correct to the penny. Mm-hmm. Depending on our customers' transaction volume, we could reconcile as often as daily or as infrequently as monthly. 
Oh, cool. And then in the first five days of the month, uh, my client's bookkeeper will reach out and say, hey, these are the five transactions from the last month that I wasn't 100% sure about. The client gives us a few notes on those transactions, which lets us update their reports. And so then their profit and loss statement and their balance sheet are both current. They're 99% current mm-hmm. every day. And then once a month, we just true everything up and make sure it's it's all the way perfect. That's, That's awesome. the crux of the service. We also help our clients with their 1099s. If they're paying contractors, we'll handle that for them. And then when their tax person wants to ask questions or make changes, you know, if they say, well, we you know, we'd like you to categorize this thing this way instead of that way. We're happy to do that. So we kind of act as the, uh, the liaison between the client and their tax person at tax time. That's so cool. Do you help them to like understand basic profit and loss statements and that kind of stuff too? Or do you kind of steer clear yeah. of that? In our, no, in our bookkeeping service, we do, uh, I have a, I have a coach in my business named Amanda and Amanda hosts a monthly group call where any of our bookkeeping bookkeeping clients can come and they can do two things. They can go over a PL if they want to, or a balance sheet, whatever so they want cool. to do. And we also run through our cash management philosophy with them. So Amanda will pull up a, she'll pull YNAB up on her screen and she'll kind of do a, a mock budgeting process. Mm-hmm. And she'll encourage those clients to do the same thing on their screen so that they know where their cash is, where they want it to be and how much they need to bring in if they want to stay on track. So it's kind of our, our one-to-one CFO service applied at a, in a group way on those monthly calls. Freaking love it. What an awesome service. I have not heard of anything quite like that. So it's really cool to see that's how you work with people. Um, when it comes to YNAB, is it a fairly seamless? So if somebody wants to get started with YNAB, try it on their own and then maybe reach out for help later. Is it something that they would just immediately get started with the categories or what do you think there? If someone's if someone's implementing it on their own, um, YNAB is a beautiful tool. It's not quite set up for business yet. Mm. So there's two things that we do to sort of make it business ready. One is we have our own sort of standard set of categories that we use. And I've never thought about sharing or publishing those, but I think we would be happy to do that. It's not complicated. I will say, if, if you think about what most bookkeepers do, They'll use terminology like a chart of accounts in QuickBooks. Yeah. In YNAB, we call it a category list. Uh, my experience is that ours is more detailed and more granular than others because we we like to have those things at a glance. That's awesome. Um, we should publish that. In fact, I'll, I'll probably mention that to my team. We should publish our category list. Yeah, it'd be super helpful. Uh, the other thing is that we've built a Google Sheet. So we export data from YNAB to the Google Sheet. And that acts as the profit and loss statement. YNAB has mm. a nice report in it that we is sort of like a, it does okay with profit and loss, but in terms of the document that we actually hand off to the accountant or the tax professional at the end of the year, that is generated in a, in a Google sheet that we, we created. Oh, love it. And that's so easy to share with an accountant too, like tax time. Exactly. Here's my P and L love yes. that. Okay. So that gives me a pretty good idea of, what that looks like from a management standpoint. Walk me through with clients and maybe even yourself too. Is there anything drastically different in financial management between a business that's earning say like $100,000 and less versus one that's earning 500,000 plus? Is there any strategies that are different for each of those cash flow management systems? Um, what I see in, in especially in coaching businesses that are 100,000 and less is that coaching 
and courses end up being a higher percentage of their spending than somebody who's at a $500,000 plus level. $500,000 plus people are still spending, um, you know, they're spending good amounts on coaching and education. But when when businesses are newer, they're, in, they're usually spending a higher percentage on those things. So if I were to point to, if there were one big difference between sub 100K businesses and say 500K plus businesses, 500K plus businesses tend to spend more on staff mm-hmm. as a percentage and 100K sub 100K businesses are spending more on coaching and programs as a percentage of their revenue. But other than that, there's not, in terms of how we manage it, there's not a big difference. We're always tracking, okay, have we set enough aside for taxes? Um, and that's probably the biggest thing. As they're making money, we're saying, okay, are we making sure to set aside the right amount for taxes because we don't want you to get caught off guard in April? Um, other than that, it's really just a different number of zeros in the business. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of beautiful, really. (laughs) It's one of the beautiful things about coaching businesses. You know, people, I've done, I've spent most of my time as a bookkeeper, a CFO in the coaching and online world. And, you know, sometimes I'll interact with somebody who's got an offline business or maybe an e-commerce business Mm -hmm. and they can be great businesses, but they're way more complicated, way lower margin, meaning a lot more of of every dollar goes to expenses than it does to the owner. Mm-hmm. Coaching businesses and online businesses are just so elegant. So when I was, um, you know, I've had clients who were doing upwards of 10 and 20 million in a coaching business. And the day-to-day management of the cash wasn't very different from a client who's doing 200,000 in a coaching business. That's so awesome. It just scales beautifully. It really does. With some of your clients, when they first get into this, like, they reach out to you for help. I presume they feel super overwhelmed, very unsure, not yeah. sure if they should pay themselves or put it back into their business. I hear that a lot too. Um, yeah. What are some of the things that they're telling themselves in their head that through your system would be fixed? Is it, they have more freedom. It's a little bit more peace. Like what, what's going on there? The first thing that we try to address is that most people who come to us have an idea that a, that they've been doing it horribly wrong, and that's been scary to them and causing anxiety for them, mm-hmm. and um, and B, that there will be some big negative consequence from having it done wrong. I, I've, I've had people admit that you know they, they worry that the tax bill is going to bankrupt them or that the IRS is going to be knocking mm-hmm. on their door or something. And it's not that I think these are crazy thoughts, but they're definitely not well-founded, yeah. uh, especially in new businesses where there isn't a ton of profit. You know, which is most new businesses. So one of the first things we try to do is say, look, whatever mess you might've made so far, don't worry about it. We will clean it up and then we'll go forward in a very streamlined way together. So that if somebody's going to do this on their own, especially the first thing I would have them tell themselves is whatever I've done so far is okay. The most important thing for me to do now is start doing it in a more attentive way because people are often ignoring it they're afraid of it. So they ignore it. And that compounds the mess. Yeah. It's so true. Uh, the other thing that, that we will encourage people to do is um, it is just to pay attention. And the result of paying attention is sometimes people think that in my business, because they hear the word budget or because they hear the word bookkeeping, they think that I must primarily be about reducing spending. Yep. Cutting, cutting costs. (laughs) So true. 
And I'm not, I've never been, that's never been, it's not my like DNA to do that. It's not how I am in my personal or my business finances. And it's not how I ask my clients to think. What I encourage people to do is to embrace a process like this because it will help them increase their spending where they want to and decrease their spending where they want to. It brings your awareness. And I'm sure this, Jesse talked about this, but mm-hmm. budgeting and, and attentive cash management, it raises your awareness to the point that you say, actually, that thing there that I do, I, I actually don't even care about it. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's not moving the needle in my life or my business. So cutting that doesn't even feel like cutting. It just feels like, oh, I got some money back that I can use on this other thing that's really important to me and that I really love. That's what I want people to realize. And that's what often happens is people realize, oh, my job is not to spend less. It's to spend more and better. That's so true. So, so true. So it sounds like give yourself a little bit of grace <laughs> to start with. Yes. It's okay that you did it incorrectly. Um, you didn't know better. Now you know better. So right. that's the first step. And then the second step would be to really get into the weeds with paying attention. And it sounds like you said to just like very much separate those accounts if it's combined currently. And then yep. from that perspective, like, do you find any healthy business ratios of like, you should pay yourself this much money based on your business size? Or how do you approach that? I don't deal a lot in ratios. I think ratios can be beneficial. Uh, you know, like a, a program like Profit First is all about those ratios. And I, yeah. I I love Profit First for that reason. I think it helps people in that way. Sometimes I think that people misunderstand ratios as being static. Yes. Like like 10% today and it's always going to be 10%. And I I don't view it that way. I view it. One of the beauties of using a tool like you need a budget to manage your cash in a business is it helps you. It gives you a visual representation of the trade-offs you're making because what you're saying is I'm giving this many dollars to this thing. Therefore I am not giving those dollars to that other thing. So I'm giving this many dollars to hiring an assistant. Therefore I'm not using those dollars for travel or for education. Your job as the CFO in your business is to own the allocation of the cash and the trade-offs it requires. Hmm. So at this point, the only percentage I'm, I, I use you know, pretty reliably, and even this is a sliding scale, is the percentage we use to estimate taxes. Yeah. Because if I look at my client's numbers, or if I have my clients look at their own numbers, and I'll kind of ask them some questions about well, what's your household income? Is there a partner in the household that we're going to be combining your profit with his or her money? And, you know, that's going to impact the tax bill. Mm -hmm. And then we just sort of say, okay, based on where you are, we're probably allocating either 15% of your revenue to taxes, could be as high as 30% of your revenue to taxes, depending on your household income and your profit in the business. But other than that, we don't really use percentages because for me, with an example, like how much should I be paying myself? My answer is always more yeah. subject to your other priorities. So if a person says, well, I really would like to take more money out of my business this year, I always say, yes, I vote for that. Unless you believe that putting that money back into the business would give you a more exciting result than paying it to yourself. Mm. It's a good rule increasing, of thumb. Increasing advertising. Maybe it means hiring a new team member. Maybe it means getting yourself some coaching that shifts your mindset to the point that you operate on a whole new earning level. But that's why we don't really rely on kind of standardized percentages. 
I really do love that. I've always had in in the personal finance world, there's the 50, 30, 20 rule. And Mm -hmm. I I appreciate it, but it also is so dependent on your goals and like where you're at. And when I was paying off my personal debt, there was no way I was having 30% for fun. Like it was all going towards my debt at that time. And so I, I love that you mentioned that for being true for businesses too. I think that's really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. When it comes to taxes, like this is like the dreaded conversation that most people are afraid of. Mm-hmm. Do you recommend putting that into like a savings account? Is it in a checking account? Like how do you set that money physically aside? Completely depends on the on the preference of the client. I because I use you need a budget to do this, that money can live in the checking account, but we can earmark it in you need a budget as the money for taxes. So it's a it's Mm. It's a, it's a digital envelope system right? and we can take however many dollars and put it into that digital envelope and then say that money is now quote unquote set aside for taxes. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do with all of my CFO clients. For example, I track how much money they have set aside for taxes in that digital envelope. But some of my clients, because they log into their bank and they want to look at the balances, they sleep better at night if they have physically partitioned the money in its own savings account. Mm. And I support them either way. I've had some clients who do it at separate banks. Oh, wow. That to me, that goes to a level that I don't view as completely necessary. But if that's what it takes for you, then I support you. (laughs) Say self-trust issues, man. (laughs) Maybe a little, maybe a little. So, but yeah, a lot of my clients, you know, when we meet monthly or if our clients are talking, if our bookkeeping clients are talking to Amanda, we'll say, okay, look at your profit. We're going to make an estimate for how much of that should be going to taxes. Now, if you want to transfer that money from checking to savings, And then it's done. You don't have to think about it anymore. I love it. It's such a beautiful method. Talk to us a little bit about your personal finances. I'm always curious about this. So how do you, do you use a similar system in your personal life? When I was making the transition from like, uh, from very low awareness, personal financial management to very high awareness, personal financial, financial management. And this is when I was working for Jesse Meekum at, you need a budget for probably six to eight months. I was in my money every single day. Uh, I, you know, every single day I was importing my transactions. I was categorizing them. I was comparing how much I had spent for the current month against one, what I expected to spend for the current month. And for that period of time, I was just super, super focused on every penny and it paid huge dividends in my life. Um, I would, for anybody who's operated either with a lot of money anxiety or, just with, uh, if they view themselves as careless, that's how I viewed myself. I viewed myself as very careless with my money. A period of intense attention and focus is, is amazing because it educates you about yourself and your preferences. And you learn what you, you just learn what you really care about. After that six or eight month period, I started to be able to pay less attention and I started to be able to operate. Uh, how do I say this? Like, Instead of understanding my personal finances at the most granular level, I started to view it more in chunks. Like this is how much I save. And I'm just sort of increasing that savings rate over time. Mm. Make this more specific. There was a time where it's like, if, if my, if my wife or I went to Costco, I was going to be very diligent about exactly how much was spent on groceries versus exactly how much was spent on sort of household items like toilet paper and I was super hyper aware of those kinds of details. 
as years passed and as I felt more comfortable and at home in my approach to my money, that became, look, if it gets spent at Walmart or Costco or Target, it's one pile and we don't care. Yep. And now we have an Amazon pile and it's like, whoa, we spent a lot on Amazon last month. What did we buy on Amazon? I don't really know, but I can dig in if I want to. Right. So in the early days, I was hyper-focused on the details. And today I'm much less focused on the details because at the highest level, I like how much money is going into long-term savings. I like how much money is going into short-term savings. And then our day-to-day kind of what makes our life work, that feels good too. So I don't have to be as hyper-aware as I once did. Oh, I love that. I think that's very true for so many people too, that are on that journey to bettering their business or their personal is you get to the point where, yeah, you do, you kind of chunk it and you don't get so granular. I'm actually to the point in my personal finance life where I, so many people are like, what's your grocery budget? I'm like, it's always this much money. It's like, well, how do you know? I'm like, I'm a creature of habit. I I do not steer too far outside of it. So it's always about the same. And if it goes a little bit more, you know, like it's fine. I can borrow from another category or something, but I I love that, that approach too. I think that's really interesting. Um, when it comes to business finances and you're starting to approach maybe a big investment, you mentioned like say a $15,000 coaching program that you really Mm -hmm. want to pay for. Mm -hmm. How do you, do you have any like guidelines even in your own businesses of like how you approach an investment decision? Yeah. First and foremost, uh, that's a mental emotional process more than it is a, a like a technical process. Totally. Uh, a lot of people, this goes back to the ratios things where people will say, well, what's the appropriate percentage for me to spend on coaching? And I always say there's no such thing as an appropriate percentage to spend on coaching. So what I ask people to, to ask themselves is where am I emotionally in this decision? All decisions are emotional. So anybody who claims that decisions are rational, they're fooling themselves. There's no such thing as a rational decision as much as we all want there to be. There are always emotional decisions. It's just a question of what is the state of our emotions when we're making that decision? Mm -hmm. So if I'm deciding whether to pay $15,000 for coaching, if I'm doing that from fear or like from FOMO, I probably, I'm more likely to regret that decision later. I'm not guaranteed to regret that decision. I don't like to be very black and white about these things because you might make a decision out of FOMO and look back and be like, that actually worked out amazingly well. And I, and I, I want, my opinion is that that can happen, but if you find yourself in a pattern of making decisions from FOMO, Mm -hmm. I think that on average, you will be less happy with your decisions in the long run. So this morning I had a client, uh, a call with a client whose business, you know, she did, I think she did 3 million last year. She's targeting 5 million this year. And as she was thinking about her decision-making process and her goal setting process, she said, last year, when I thought about my goal, I felt like, like I was holding onto it for dear life. I felt Mm. anxious about it. I felt, I wondered if I could do it. It felt like pressure. And she had a great year, but she didn't hit her goal. This year, she said, I've set this goal and it just feels true and it feels easy and it feels relaxed and I feel excited about it. Now that's, you know, we're talking about goal setting there, but I think the exact same thing applies to a decision about a purchase. If you feel pressure, if you feel 
anxiety, sort that out before you say yes or no. Mm-hmm. Get your brain cleaned up, get your get your emotions cleaned up, then come back to that and say, why am I going to spend this 15K? Am I enthusiastic? Am I confident? If so, great, go for it. If I'm scared, just hit pause. Yeah. So it ends up being, of course, the other part of it, like for example, a $15,000 decision, the question becomes, well, are you going to pay for it with cash or are you going to pay for it with, with debt? Right. I'm not strictly anti-debt, mm-hmm. but debt does change the game because it's, as we know, so much easier to get into debt than it is to get out of debt. Sure is. <laughs> and we also know that once I've, what I say about debt is, is when you, when you borrow money, all you're doing is purchasing negative income, not mm. negative as in bad, but negative as in less than zero. So I just say to people, I'm not anti-debt. I'm just debt skeptical. And I say, if everything we do is about our confidence level, and sometimes we end up being happy that we were so confident. And sometimes we're, we end up not being so happy about that confidence. But if someone says to me, my only way to finance this thing is with borrowed money, I'll say, I'm not really borrowing much money in my life these days. But if, if you are that confident that it's going to move the needle in your business, in your life, and you're willing to deal with the financial and mental and emotional consequences of that, of that borrowed money, then I support you. Uh, if there's any way to avoid it, let's avoid it. But if you really feel like now's the time and this is the thing and I'm going to do this, I mean, I've borrowed money a lot of times. I had to borrow when I bought my business, my clients from Jesse because of the way my finances had been managed at the time. Mm-hmm. I borrowed the money from Jesse to buy my clients from him. Yeah. Then I paid it off as fast as I humanly could because not only did I owe money, I owed money to one of my best friends. <laughs> I feel that I would, I do the same thing. And I was like, let's get this balance to zero ASAP. (laughs) Yep. I totally feel that. Um, And I think too, with, with business debt, a lot of people, when I talk about businesses, they get a little confused because in, in my personal life, I'm a big believer, no debt, mostly because I also have a business and I recognize that anything I can do to keep my personal life pretty lean and functional is going to help my business as a whole. Right. And so that's one of those things too, where it's like so many times with businesses, if you do take on debt, smart debt, strategic debt, where you think you can get a good ROI, that's great. Like that's not yeah. necessarily a bad thing. It's not evil. Like we all think it is for personal lives either. I, I just think it's such a funny conversation around debt. There's a lot of dogma around debt. Totally. And and I think we turn it into uh we almost turn it into like a religious issue. For sure. And, uh, you know, I kind of point to Dave Ramsey for a lot of that. And mm-hmm. I think I think Dave has done a lot of amazing work in the world. Something I'm not as excited about is that I think that a lot of the dogma we have around debt comes from his philosophy. Yeah. And so I just try to encourage people not to be dogmatic about it. I encourage them to say, to think strategically. And the one thing I would say about borrowing money in a business is I would, I would sort of practice I would walk before I run. Mm. So if someone's like, I'm going to borrow money to help grow my business, I would say, and I would say, you know, well, can you borrow a thousand instead of a hundred thousand? Can you give yourself a little bit of an internship as a business borrower to see how you think and feel and act in the presence of that debt? Because you'll get to know yourself. And then when the opportunity comes to, you know, maybe it's 
maybe now instead of borrowing a thousand, it's borrowing 10,000. You've already had a little bit of experience with yourself as a business borrower. Yeah. Practice the skill. That's so smart. Mark, I have loved this conversation so much. I could easily talk with you all day about this stuff because it's so nerdy (laughs) and so fun, but is there anything that we didn't touch on that you feel like is, is worth mentioning for business owners trying to manage their books and their cash flow? Yes. Here's the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with Whitney. I've been dealing with business owners finances now for seven years. And something that comes up very often is people come to me with what they think are finance problems and they are marketing problems. Ooh, this is good. And what we, here's what it looks like. Uh, An example would be someone comes to me and says, I've got to figure out my money. Like I just, you know, I, 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 my money management must not be very good. And I, and I start to dig and say, well, what do you mean your money management isn't very good? And what comes out is they just don't have as much money as they want. Mm. And in business, not having as much money as you want is solved 99% by your marketing and sales efforts. And then the money management comes after that. So I, I've had a few experiences over the last seven years where people come to me and they want money coaching and I end up turning them away and say, go get a business coach. Yep. Go get a business coach, make a lot more money. And then I am happy to count it for you. Yep. But counting it is not your current problem. Marketing and sales are your current biggest uh, opportunity. So I would leave, I would leave your audience with that. If they're short on money, it's more likely that their marketing and sales isn't what they want it to be than it is that their budgeting processes aren't what they want them to be. That is so good, Mark. I am so grateful that you shared that because that's very, very true and even very relevant to me too. I'm always thinking about marketing and sales. So I appreciate that. That's really good advice. Um, For anybody that wants to go maybe hire you, work with you in some capacity, where do they go to find you? Letsdothebooks.com. Perfect. Super Uh, simple and easy. There's a link they can sign up there and chat with me if they're wondering about working with me. There's a little five-day email course where they can kind of get to know us and our processes. And uh, yeah, let's do the books.com. That's so awesome. Mark, before we officially part ways, are you down for some rapid fire questions? Oh, sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I personally am obsessed with people's morning routines. I just find them to be so interesting. So what is your current morning routine? Oh, you caught me. Uh, my morning routine is... My morning routine is hit and miss. In fact, it's one of my 2021 things where I think I would really love to dial in more of a morning routine. Um, my morning routine at the moment just mostly revolves around my family. So it's, I don't have an alarm because I, my daughter has made my alarm unnecessary for the last 11 years. She is the <laughs> alarm. Uh, and mostly my morning routine is get up, uh, get the dog fed, get the dog outside, maybe help get the kids going to school. And then I very often have a client call early in the morning. I'm so appointment driven in my life that if I want to feel like I've started off productively, I'll put appointments early in the morning because that just throws me into the work of the day as early as possible. That's that's about as much of a morning routine as I have right now. That's pretty good. I like it. I think that's awesome. Um, next question for you. Let's pretend this is post COVID. Uh, where's one location you're dying to travel to? There is a resort in, in Port, uh, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where my family and I went two years ago, and I'm just dying to get back there. It was my most relaxing week maybe ever. Whoa. 
Um, yeah, just reading a book, hanging out by the pool. It was this great resort where you have fun pools and slides for the kids. And then it's just a short walk, like 50 yards over to the beach. So you can kind of bounce back and forth between those. We never had to leave the resort. It was, it was pure relaxation. I, we were going to go last year, didn't go, we're gonna go this year, but COVID and we will absolutely be there in January of 22. That's awesome. It sounds great. Okay. Next question for you. What's one book you find yourself recommending most? Ooh, let me look at my bookshelf because there are a few that I give away more consistently. Mm. Uh, I give away building a story brand by Donald Miller very often. I can't, I can't recommend it strongly enough. That's definitely the one I give away most. Awesome. I need to go back and revisit that one too. uh, Financially I've given away, uh, I've given your money or your life away a lot. Oh, great book. Uh, I love that book. It's a little dogmatic for me. Yeah. But I think the the principles that um, Vicki and Joe teach about high awareness are really powerful. So I love that book. Love it. Okay. Last question for you, my friend. In your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? Creating a definition that feels true to you. So taking in what other people say about financial success learning from it, but really going inside yourself to define, to define it for yourself is the, is the key to financial success because it's not a, it's not a dollar amount. Having worked with people who make all the way from $0 up to literally multiple millions of dollars per year. I've observed that the the level of happiness between those two groups is roughly similar. So it can't be the dollar amount that really defines financial success I think it's finding your own definition and then living according to that definition. Beautiful. Mark, what a great way to wrap up the conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I know it was truly impactful for me. I learned a ton and I know a lot of people are going to get some great value from this. So thank you again for your time. Thank you for having me, Whitney. It was a blast of a conversation. Okay. What'd you think? I love this episode. I thought it was so interesting. The part that really stood out to me most was that it may actually be a marketing problem, not necessarily a cash flow management problem. I thought that was a really good differentiator because so many times we always think that we can just manage our money a little bit better when it comes to business, but really we just need more sales. So I thought that was a really great point, but I'd love to hear from you. What were your biggest takeaways? Please tag me on Instagram and take a screenshot of this episode to let me know that you're listening in and share with me one or two of your favorite takeaways. It's always so fun to see what you're learning from these episodes and who's actually listening in. All right, guys, that is it for today. Thank you so much for hanging out and I will see you on Friday for five tip Friday or next week for another episode of the money nerds podcast. Bye.